The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 5, chapter, 7, uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, good morning, everybody. We are, uh, we are approaching fast the end of our Galatians series, uh, which will end the weekend before Palm Sunday. And uh, so then there'll be Palm Sunday and then Easter, and then we'll launch into a new series after that. Uh, but today we're talking about uh, running well. And uh, let me start this way. Imagine uh, there's a marriage. There's a husband and a wife. And... Um, the wife notices uh, on her husband's phone a text message uh, comes up from, uh, from a woman that she doesn't recognize. And so just out of curiosity, she, she peeks at the text exchange and realizes that her husband uh, has been uh, writing back and forth uh, flirtatious text messages with a woman from work. And she confronts him, and he becomes defensive and says, well, nothing happened. It it was just a little text exchange. And, And of course, she responds and says, nothing happened. Everything just happened. Because the nature of a marriage covenant is this, forsaking all others. As long as we both shall live, it is you and you alone. That I, upon whom I set my eyes and my affection and my loyalty. What Paul is doing here is he's confronting a situation in which people might be saying, well, it's no big deal. And, and, and he might be saying, well, everything is happening right now. You're completely blowing things up and you're treating it like it's something Small. What, what, what's happening is that false teachers have come into this particular church, and through flattery and through endearing themselves to the people in manipulative ways, they have gained traction in teaching that if you want to have a real relationship with God, a full and complete relationship with God, and if you want to have full and complete belonging in the family of God or the church, then it's Jesus plus Jewishness. You have to have Jesus and you have to have Jewishness. And the word that sort of summarizes Jewishness and Jewish culture and all that goes with it is circumcision. Meanwhile, Paul is trying to pull them back to the message that brought them into God's heart and into God's family in the first place, and it's this. 
If you have Jesus and nothing else, you belong to God and you belong to God's family. In other words, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's what the gospel is. And as soon as you add anything to this, even the smallest addition to the pure gospel, which is salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, as soon as you add any requirements to that as a basis to, be, to belong, as soon as you add to Christ, you subtract Christ. And as soon as you subtract Christ, you subtract yourself from belonging. And that's what's happening here. You're breaking the covenant because you want to save yourself. You, you, you want to think, you would like to think that, that, that you've got something to contribute to, to earn and procure your own favor with God and with the community. And the way that Paul describes this, this little addition, which is no little, little addition, is leaven. You know, those of you who bake bread, I, I don't bake bread, so I don't, I don't really understand it, so I just kind of read up on it. But leaven is that stuff that you put in the dough, and when you cook it, it's, it's what makes the bread grow big, right? It, you know, unleavened bread is kind of like a cracker. Uh, leavened bread is like a loaf. One little bit, in the same way that, that one little tiny microscopic virus can, can actually destroy an entire village, or one little tiny spark can actually destroy an entire forest. One little bit of legalism, one little bit of, of acceptance of, of, of the idea that Jesus plus something else, plus some other behavior, plus some other way of thinking, plus some other this, that, or the other, you lose the whole gospel. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is unpack what Paul is, is now getting really forceful about. Jesus God helps those who can't help themselves. And we'll talk about the portrait of a troublemaking false teacher. How do you spot a false teacher? The portrait of a gracious friend, which Paul exemplifies, and then a portrait of Christ. And so, so first, portrait of a troublemaking false teacher. Here's what the false teacher is. According to Paul in, in the Galatian letter, the false teacher is the person with more religion. With more religion. And there's the appearance of being super devout, but the reality is you're being super unfaithful. More religion, more rules than the ones that God puts before you. Imposing rules on yourself and on other people that God himself does not impose, and the scriptures don't impose. In verse 11, what happens when this dynamic is, it occurs when you add rules, when you add things to Christ, it says that there, there's a climate in which people start to take offense and start to perse persecute each other. Now, when we think of persecution, we might think of violence, and that's one form of persecution that's happened over the centuries. But inside churches, what, what happens is a form of persecution that feels a lot more like social exclusion or, or shaming and putting people in their place because they're not abiding by rules that God doesn't impose, but that the people do. And so one of my guilty pleasures, and I, I want to put the emphasis on guilt rather than pleasure. I'm not really sure if I should do this, but there's a, 
there's a Twitter account, uh, and, and what it is is a series of, of one to two minute clips of hyper-fundamentalist preachers, and I, I don't know if I watch that to, I don't know why I watch it, but I, but I watch all of them, and maybe I'm just intrigued, like, like how do you get from the Bible and from the gospel of grace to this kind of preaching? And so one, here are three major themes of all the preachers that are, that are spotlighted on this Twitter account. Number one, if a woman wears pants, she can't be a Christian. Because it's the man who wears the pants. And woman, women can't wear pants and shouldn't wear pants. And if a woman, if your wife or your daughter or your mother wear pants, you need to confront her for rebelling against God. Another one is that the King James Version of the Bible is the only legitimate version. It's even superior to, uh, in one sermon clip I heard, to the original Hebrew and Greek, the King James Version. <laughs> and then a third is, if you drink alcohol, then you don't belong to God. It's, there's no way that you could belong to Jesus Christ if you drink alcohol. And then I get really curious about how you get there from... Jesus saying, this is my body and this is my blood and putting wine on the table. And then the teaching is, well, that wasn't alcoholic wine. Why on earth did Paul say, don't get drunk with wine then, if it wasn't alcoholic? I've, I've never seen somebody get drunk off of grape juice. Maybe it could happen. <laughs> but the point being, the, the, these, these rules are, are becoming sort of the the line in the sand of, of what, what communicates that you belong and what communicates you don't. And, and the other common thread about, about all of these clips is you never hear the name of Jesus mentioned. It's all about what you must do, and, and, and it's nothing about what Jesus has done. Adding laws does not help obedience to Christ. It hinders it. And that's precisely what Paul says in verse 7. By, by adding laws, you're hindering your own obedience. Now, this, this kind of posture and approach is, is less about God, and it's a lot more about us and our, our desire. What, what is it about human nature? Where we desire, where we want, where we crave this, this, this notion of creating dividing lines that separate the world between the good people and the bad people, and we want to be on the side of the good people, between those who are insiders and those who are outsiders, and of course, we're the insiders, those who are us and those who are them, and of, of course, we're us and they are them. This is all silly, right? You know, these hyper-fundy rules about women wearing pants and whether or not you can have a beer or what Bible translation is the true translation, and, and, and yet, you know, we think these things are silly, and, and they are. But at the same time, are, are we any different? So I was invited to, uh, to speak to a, a, the staff of a church in Los Angeles a few weeks ago about church culture in a political year, in an election year. Because, and, and here's how the senior pastor communicated the situation to me. He said, Last time, 2016, it was awful. The, the election was an incredibly divisive thing in our church. 70% of our staff would identify as 
progressive, 30% of our staff would identify as conservative, and then on the other hand, 70% of our congregation would identify as politically conservative, and 30% of our congregation would identify as progressive, and so it was a mess. We were all quick to speak and slow to listen. Now, here's the reality in, in, in Los Angeles, in Nashville, and anywhere else. In one part of your city, you can have an entire church of people. All of them say, we believe the Bible 100%, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, every word of it's true, every word of it's from God, and we have no idea how a person could claim at the same time to be a Christian and a Democrat. And then another place in the same city, you can have another church filled with people saying, we believe that the Bible is 100% true from the very beginning to the very end, and we cannot fathom how anyone could call themselves a Christian and a Republican. See what's going on here? What's going on is this. For some, conservative politics is your circumcision. It's the thing that, conser- that, that determines whether or not somebody belongs, whether or not somebody's really a Christian, or at least a, a good one. And for others, your liberal politics are your circumcision, your rule. But here's the thing. Jesus, the King of Kings, whose, gov- you know, whose government will will grow and perpetuate and reign forever and who's the king of kings and lord of lords and and whose kingdom kingdom is not of this world and, and, and stands higher above all other kingdoms and who holds the hearts of kings in his hands and sometimes devours kings. Comes into the conservative world and comes into the progressive partisan world and says, I affirm that and I affirm that and I affirm that and I'm going to eat that and that and that and that for lunch. You got this right. You're so messed up over here. And you're blind. And, and one of the signs of your blindness is that you criticize the other party more than you criticize your own. You've gotten logs and specks reversed. Where you think there's a log in their eye and only a little speck in yours, but as you remove the speck from theirs, you have to consider the log in yours if you want to be faithful. Are we still friends? I mean, one of the largest denominations in the world is about to blow up around these things. It's all over the news this past week. It's about to blow up because of this. When belonging and exclusion are based on dividing lines that God himself rejects, then that is a sign that there are troublemaking false teachers who've gotten a stronghold in the community. The way Paul summarizes it is this, you are running poorly. You know, verse 7, you were running well. Who has now hindered you from obeying the truth by adding religion to Jesus? Did you hear that? Any culture, even a church culture, where you hear a lot more about the behavioral expectations than you do about what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf and on our behalf and on their behalf, 
is false. It's poison. It's out of line with the gospel. I mean, among the very last words that God leaves us with in the very last book of the Bible, in the very last chapter is, if anyone adds to the words that are in this book, the curses that are threatened in this book will be imposed on them. Yeesh. Portrait of a troublemaking false teacher is one who moves from God helps those who can't help themselves to God helps those who can help themselves. Portrait of a gracious friend, that's, that's what Paul exemplifies. And there are three features of a gracious friend that, that we see here in Paul. Discernment, tenderness, and a temper. Discernment, tenderness, and a temper. So let's start with discernment. What is dishonoring to Jesus Christ in one situation can actually be honoring to Christ in another. Let's talk about circumcision. You know, chapter 2, Paul talks about Titus. Titus is a young pastor. Paul is his mentor. And the question is raised, should Titus be circumcised? And, And Paul says, absolutely not. Under no circumstances, especially should this aspiring leader in the church of Jesus Christ cave into pressure to behave Jewishly or to put it in our context, to behave Democrat, or to behave Republican, or to behave King James only, or to behave drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol. The pressure to behave according to a certain culture as a way to merit favor from God and belonging in the community If you follow through, you are sending the false message that God helps those who who help themselves, that ultimately people's own salvation is on their shoulders, and it's their burden to carry. Because if, if circumcision is a requirement, then all the law, the whole law, you have to keep the whole thing. It's all or nothing, Paul says. But then if we go to Acts chapter 16, there's another young protege named Timothy, and Paul is his mentor, and Timothy is an aspiring pastor. And the question is raised as Paul and Timothy are traveling on a missionary journey to minister to a community of Jewish people, should Timothy be circumcised? And Paul says, yes, we ought to circumcise you, Timothy, before we go minister and preach the gospel among the Jewish people. Different outcome, very different motivations and reasons behind it. What was the reason for Timothy becoming circumcised? Neighbor love. Let's remove any potential hang-up that, 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 that this group of people may have with us as we enter in to preach the gospel. If you just, if you just get cut, a little, it's going it's to be a little bit painful and a little bit bloody like all fruitful ministry. It'll be a little bit painful and a little bit bloody. Anything worth doing is going to be that. And so let's do this, not as a way to merit favor from God or gain belonging in the community, but to say to the Jewish people, I care 
about you so much that I'm willing to become like one of you in order to remove all barriers of this all-important message. It's like what Paul said to the Corinthians, I become all things to all people that I might possibly save some. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. And that's what's going on with Timothy. Real-life application of it right in front of me right now, if if you ever come to you know, the Lord's table at Christ's prayer, you'll see that there, there are options. We have juice, we have wine. Jesus said, this is my body, and he served bread. He said, this is my blood, and he served wine. And, 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 and yet, there is the recognition that there are many in churches today, especially in our culture, for whom alcohol is a stumbling block. Maybe they've got a story of addiction themselves. Maybe they're a child of an alcoholic, and, and just, you know, the, the thought of drinking it or, or smelling it is, is a major trigger. And so, so here we go. Here, here are the options. On the one hand, we don't impose tighter standards on everybody by removing the wine from the table. But on the other hand, we want to act and serve in love to our neighbors for whom it's a struggle and a stumbling block. And so there's a nuance, there's a discernment to it. The second feature of a gracious friend is tenderness. You notice Paul's tone. Remember, Galatians is a letter where Paul is getting in people's faces. It starts this way, I'm astonished that you're deserting the one who called you. I'm astonished that you're deserting Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's in your face. This text is no, no different. But in the context of, of, of even forceful confrontation, he says things like this. Verse 7, you were running well. In other words, there was a time where you had it right, and I was so proud of you. Can we get back to that? And in verse 10, he says, I'm confident. In other words, he's hopeful. He says, I'm confident that you're going to come around again. I believe in you. And in verse 11, he calls them brother. That's a, uh, brothers. That's a familial term of endearment. Tim Keller calls this the act of catching other people doing good. The act of intentionally catching other people doing good. At Christ's Pres, we call it a living eulogy. Why do we have to wait till people are dead before we start saying nice things about them? Oh, because... You know, they're so this or they're so that or they're so the other. They're so, you know, inconsistent. Well, join the human race. We're all incredibly inconsistent. We're all hiding things that we're afraid of people knowing. We're all untransparent on some level because of that. We're all scared. We're all carrying our own shame. We're all carrying our own regrets. So join the human race. If if this person is imperfect over here, that doesn't mean you can't say anything good. Why do we have to wait till somebody is dead to start saying nice things and kind things, especially nice and kind things that are true? It doesn't negate the bad things. It doesn't diminish or minimize them. But it does say, look, I see you're a complicated human being or you're a complicated group of human beings 
You, like me, are an incomplete work in progress, and I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's always hopeful, but it's also honest. The gracious friend will not reduce people to their very worst attributes, decisions, and seasons. Remember that in a, an election year, okay? Remember that, because that's like strategy number one in politics world is to treat, you know, our side like the savior of the world who can do no wrong, and the other side is the devil of hell who can do nothing right. Guess what? We've all got things to learn from people who think and see things differently. There's vice and virtue almost everywhere. Paul himself would be disqualified if, 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 if the Christian thing was to reduce people to the very worst features about them. Paul himself would have been canceled. You look at the way that Jesus treats the prostitute in Luke chapter 7. She comes off the street, dressed like a prostitute, probably after a, a day on the job, and she doesn't know exactly how to behave, and so she just starts weeping and letting her tears drop on Jesus' feet and, and then squirting some perfume or, or pouring some perfume on Jesus' feet and then wiping his feet clean with her hair. And the, you know, the, the cancel culture people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they want to cancel her out. Ah, oh, she's a sinner. And if this man knew what kind of woman she was, he would know that she's a sinner and wouldn't have anything to do with her, so he can't be a prophet. So cancel, cancel, cancel. Cancel them both. Hashtag them both out of here. Right? And meanwhile, Jesus looks at the, per at the woman, and, and, and she doesn't, he doesn't see her as a sinner, even though she's committed great sin. He sees her as a woman, as a person, not a thing. And he says to the false teachers, do you see this woman? She's, she's just given you a clinic on what it, what it looks like to love. You who know the Bible backwards and forwards, you have been memorizing Holy Scripture since the day you were born, don't know the first thing about love. You're missing the point of everything. And she who knows none of the Bible, perhaps, has just shown you what it means and what I mean when I say that prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of God faster than pastors and elders and deacons and lifelong church people. The last thing that a gracious friend will give you is a temper when it's appropriate to have a temper. Boy, how can that be a Christian thing? Well, Jesus is the lamb. We've talked about the tenderness, but he's also the lion. And Christians are ambassadors and the aroma of Christ in the world in all of his fullness. That's what we're meant to be. So Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul writes, cling to what is good. But, but before that, he says, you know, there's a flip side of that coin that's necessary too. In order to cling to what's good, you have to hate, you have to despise, you have to detest, you have to bite and fight against what's evil. I want you to be my lambs and I want you to be my lions Paul loses his cool here. Listen to this, verse 12. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. 
Self-castration, that's what I wish for them. Now at our Music Row congregation, they have a, a deaf interpreter. I'm really interested to get the video to see how they interpret this <laughs> this morning. Why does he get so hot? You know, basically saying, okay, you're demanding circumcision, you're imposing circumcision on, on everybody. Well, while you're at it, why don't you just go all the way? Why don't you just cut the whole business off? And he's speaking in the name of Christ. Yeah, all scripture is inspired by God, including this part. What is Paul after? He wants to halt reproduction. That's why emasculation happens. I wish you would give yourselves a spiritual vasectomy so that, so that the reproduction of the toxicity that you're bringing into my house would halt. Why so fierce? Because there's a lot at stake. Lamb and lion. Christ is the lamb. Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. That's who I am. And the tender-hearted Enneagram nines among us say, yes, yes. But the cowards among us say that too. The cowards who don't want to enter into conflict. The cowards who run as far away from conflict as possible. And who always interpret the presence of conflict, even hating what's evil openly, as unchristian. But then you've got the prophetic bullies on the other side who in the name of Christ the lion um, just walk all over people and don't have tenderness, don't catch people doing good, always just finding faults. You know, Jesus got hot with some people. He did. He got hot with people. Matthew 21 and Mark 11, he's flipping over tables because People are turning church life into materialism and greed. And then in Matthew 23, he pronounces the famous seven woes over the scribes and Pharisees, the church leaders who are not unlike the false teachers at Galatia. He calls them names. Jesus resorts to name calling. You are hypocrites. You're blind guides. You are clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. You're snakes. You're a brood of vipers. You're bullies. You are sons of Satan. And then what does he do? After, after bringing out his lion's teeth, he, he then becomes the lamb. And he climbs up on a hill, looks over this city of Jerusalem filled with hypocrites and children of Satan who add to grace. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I'm a lamb for you. I'm a lamb for you. How I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. He's not schizophrenic. He's just a complete human. He's a complete human. You know, he doesn't get into the Pharisees and scribes' faces in order to cancel them. He gets into their faces one, in order to defend the people that they're bullying who can't defend themselves. And two, to put a smelling salt under the noses of the perpetrators to wake them up out of their spiritually drunken stupor, drunk on their own good works. 
The way of Jesus is the only way. God helps those who know they cannot help themselves. Every other way, every way that adds to what Christ has done, rips the fabric of the universe and rips the fabric of your own heart and your own flourishing. Lastly, a portrait of Christ. Again, he's the lamb and lion. He's the perfect, he's the perfect blend of tenderness and ferocity. And I can't, I can't think of a better sort of portrait of Christ than C.S. Lewis's Aslan. And one scene in particular comes to mind from The Silver Chair, which is one of the chronicles of Narnia, where the young girl Jill is parched with thirst. And Aslan, the big lion, is standing next to the only stream that she can see. And the conversation goes this way. And Aslan is the Christ figure, by the way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if the lion were sorry, nor as if the lion were angry. The lion just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's the summary statement of Galatians. There is no other stream. God only helps those who can't help themselves and know it. You feel good about that? I feel good about that. Because what it means is the pressure is off. The pressure is off. And it means also what Mr. Tumnus told the young Susan in The Lion and the Witch and the wardrobe, he is not safe. In other words, there are times when he will get into your grill for your good. Because even though he is not safe, he is good. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lion of Judah who gets up in the grill of anyone who dares to have the audacity to add a single thing to his own finished work on behalf of those he loves. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and thank you for the Lion of God who gets fierce in order to protect the vulnerable from the vulnerabilities imposed on them by falsehood, and even the vulnerabilities we impose on ourselves by adding pressure to ourselves to keep laws and rules of belonging that you never intended to impose on us. Lord, thank you that you are the God who helps those who cannot help themselves and know it. And as we prepare to approach your table, we come as those people, Lord, as those who cannot help ourselves, but, but, but who have been helped by the maker of heaven and earth. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. May I ask you please to stand with me. Uh, and as, as servers are making your, ways, your way to the tables to serve the community around the Lord's table, and as, as the praying people are making their way, and as the children are making their way in, I want to uh, invite us all to uh, read from the Book of, Book of Common Prayer together this responsive uh, reflection. Is the Father with us? He is. Is Christ among us? He is. Is the Spirit here? He is. This is our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are His people. We are redeemed. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray again one more time. Father, would you please set apart this bread and this cup? Would you consecrate it? Would you take these ordinary elements of bread and, and the cup and, uh, Lord, nourish our bodies, but, but nourish our souls as well, Lord, with your very real presence and with the triumph of your body and blood over our sin and over our shame, so that there's nothing left for us to do except receive the riches and the freedom that you've provided through the cross and through your resurrection. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.